Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Reiling with the Aspen Institute. Uh, it's our pleasure uh, to welcome you this morning to our Game Changers panel. Here's the way we're going to work it. We have about an hour and ten minutes total. Uh, we have four different speakers. Each of them will come up serially uh, to cut down on uh, the amount of time that I spend at this microphone. They're going to be introducing themselves and then go straight into their talks. And after the four of them have been up here, we'll all get up on stage and we can do a question and answer with those of you from the audience. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce Michael Mendelhall and ask him to come up on stage and get us started. Michael, over to you. Great. Thank you. Is this on? So Michael Mendenhall, uh, Chief Marketing Officer and Senior Vice President at Hewlett Packard. However, before that, I spent 17 years with the Walt Disney Company, actually working for a very impressive CEO who happens to be here, Michael Eisner. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. So what I'd like to do is get started. You know, throughout this conference, you've heard a lot about challenges, challenges that exist in almost every vertical industry whether that's finance, healthcare, education, you've heard issues. We're here to tell you at HP there's solutions to those issues. There are daunting sort of macroeconomic and demographic pieces of information you've heard throughout the conference that I will repeat, but we believe that IT has a huge role in making a difference and providing solutions to some of these answers, big societal issues that have answers with IT. So what I'd like to do to sort of frame this up is start with a video that'll frame up the conversation I'm going to have with you. The world isn't simple. Powerful long-term forces are changing the needs and balance of the global community, like population growth, urbanization, globalization, and the information explosion. Fast-growing demands are tapping a well of rapidly diminishing resources. But there's one powerful exception. A resource that is both growing and renewable, the human capacity to innovate. At HP, we've helped lead a revolution in the way information is created, captured, stored, processed, and shared. We've ushered in an era of open industry standards, freeing data from the handcuffs of mainframes, and democratizing information technology. As computing power becomes more affordable, And online access becomes more available. Everything will be delivered as a service, from business processes to personal interactions. With this power in hand, we're working to change the equation and provide a different answer to society's greatest challenges, like energy, healthcare, and education. We see a future where an intelligent infrastructure automatically provisions power, water, waste management, and transportation across entire cities. Hospitals are digitally integrated from bedside to billing, and healthcare is naturally integrated into everyday life. A new generation of intuitive devices and services deliver always-on, always-connected learning from the world's greatest educators 
to a student body that numbers in the billions. In a world where demands and resources to meet them don't add up, technology can change the equation and provide a different answer for a sustainable global society. So there were a lot of data points, as you can see here, that were in that video. What we know is that within the next 15 years, the global population is going to grow by over 1 billion people. At the same time, you're going to see a swelling global middle class of over 440 million. At that same time, we see an urbanization. People, every other month, 60 million people moving into urban centers. That's really like adding another Beijing every other month. And you can see some of these other statistics relative to handheld devices proliferation of technology. You saw also in this video the idea that every four years information is doubling, every sort of 16 months digitization and content is doubling. As you start to look at that stress and all of that information that's out there, it does have to be managed and stored and produced in an effective way. So you really begin to look at efficiencies and effectiveness and the use of information, information being knowledge. So we like to say, you know, information that isn't managed is noise, you want to turn it into knowledge. And I think that's what we're, we're doing here uh, at HP. What we also know when you think about these intelligent infrastructures is that the infrastructures that were built for the last 100 years will not map to the next 100 years. So as you think about developing countries are getting younger and developed countries are getting older, the same time you see all these other macro trends. So you're going to start to see a stress on social services in certain markets, you're going to start to see a demand for access in other markets with this growing global middle class. How are we going to meet those needs, especially in these verticals? And when we say changing the equation, we're really talking about game-changing ideas, game-changing ideas in every single vertical. And I'll talk to some of these that become incredibly important. You've heard a lot about healthcare. You've heard a lot about energy. You've heard a lot about education. Every single government, community, or municipality is going to come under this stress if they haven't already felt it today. And we believe that IT will be the most valuable resource in the 21st century and has an obligation to help in these other verticals to sustain uh, a, a better society for all of us. So oh, let me go back. So again, uh, here is just a comment, again, as I said, about being the most valuable resource that we have. Um, and it's this power to sort of innovate. And what we really do believe is, you know, you begin to see dwindling natural resources at the same time that you see this uh, incredible uh, pressure on current infrastructure. And what we like to say really here is that the human capacity to innovate is one sustainable resource that we know we have and that we should support across all of these industries. So it's really about how do you get the right information to the right people at the right time, really making better utilization of all of these resources, natural and other, uh, for both private and public sector. And so what I want to do is talk to you a little bit about some examples, because as you think about, well, how do you do that? Does the technology exist today? We're here to say, yes, it does, and we are proving it and showing it through the smart use of software and hardware that can be wrapped in services and deliver these efficiencies. So, it's a win-win for companies and municipalities and governments. This is one example that we have with D D Detroit Power and Water, which is the third largest in the US. 
And this is where we actually used software for real-time sort of consumption information every four minutes, very dynamic. So if you think about from the meter all the way back, you think about supply and demand and the inefficiencies that you see in water and sewer resources, electricity. And you think about how do you begin to look at smart grid technology. You've heard about smart grid. Well, we believe that IT is the smart in the smart grid. And here you can see we've delivered over a 15% efficiency relative to that supply and demand. You think about 15% of all the water that's flowing through Detroit. You're going to begin to see, one, an ability to conserve natural resources and to be smarter, be more efficient. We've done this, so that's a little bit in energy. We've done this in medical. So I'll give you a picture. If you think about medical uh, costs associated with then care, you used to have a doctor who would come in for a physical and he'd have a stethoscope and a clipboard with a lot of paper. And the paper would move around. Sometimes the paper could get lost. Sometimes the paper wasn't completely accurate. So you didn't have the quality, but you also had enormous inefficiency. If you think about today, the doctor shows up with a stethoscope and a notebook. And in the notebook, he has your entire medical record. He has all of your x-rays and any kind of specialist activity that took place within your medical life. And he begins to have a dialogue with you and is real time emailing some of those specialists if there's questions that are asked that you want answered. Now you take that to mobility as a secular trend and you start to say, how do we deliver that information real time to the right person, whether it be nurse, doctor, or patient? And that's what we did at St. Olaf's Hospital in Norway. There is tremendous amounts of efficiency in lowering the uh, healthcare costs while delivering better care to the end user, the patient, by using information technology. This exists today. So again, these are answers to some of these issues. Education, and this is just one example. There is $4 billion of brain drain out of sub-Saharan Africa every year. And this is where you see leading scientists, educators, and academics who leave to do research, who leave to actually go study. Most do not come back. Therefore, what we've done is we've actually decided to build a cloud infrastructure. So if you can think about taking the best libraries, the best connectivity, the best resources for academia, for research, build them in a cloud-based system in sub-Saharan Africa that allows every African university to participate and access that information, which information, as we know, is knowledge. We've done that with UNESCO in Africa. So another example of how technology can play an enormous role in helping to build more sustainable communities and more sustainable economies. Canada, this is just another one. As you begin to think about, uh, and this is in the public sector, but you begin to think about food and really food quality from where it's harvested to the table. And you think about certain sort of diseases like salmonella and things that can be traced through. What we've actually done is digitize this and we, through mobility, can actually trace the entire food chain. And we're doing that in Canada right now, which actually again begins to affect the health of the kids. It allows us to track this. We actually use this software again to do it for drug administration, which can be done again in many of are the emerging economies and emerging markets that allow you also to deliver the right prescriptions 
to the right people using mobility, which is more prolific than some of the emerging markets than what we see in hardware form factors. The Atlantic, this is just another example of a partner who's here who actually is using this capability and technology and changing the equation in publishing using on-demand personalization printed digitally delivered to you in a personal way with no premium. There is no waste, right? As you think about over three million magazines are recycled every year that are never sold that go on newsstand, you think about on-demand, on-time, personalized, delivered to you, and they're only printed when the credit card is swiped and is sent to your home. It really becomes a much more sustainable future for magazine publishing and for marketers, it becomes more interesting because you actually know who the person is before you print the magazine. Uh, and The Atlantic has done a terrific job here in using that capability. DreamWorks, we've done a great partnership with DreamWorks where we actually innovated a way to do production in the media entertainment community in a very sustainable way. They produced their films in Korea, Northern California, Southern California, and they wanted to make sure that the story, the production, the quality of the colors, the color of the green on Shrek here is the same color of the green being produced in Northern California, Southern California. So we developed a, a co-innovated product called Halo, which is a telepresence type product that allows them to communicate, share the creativity, uh, share the level of, of production, both pre and post production uh, in a very uniform way without flying anybody anywhere, right? We now use this in business. We use this in over 400 areas around the world. Uh, so it is something that we co-innovated with them to uh, uh, give them the ability to produce better quality entertainment in 3D, uh, and we've actually scaled that to industries around the world. So in closing, because we have a short period of time, we do think information and IT is a solution for addressing some of these societal needs and building a sustainable future in many of these uh, industries that are under increasing pressure. We also know that the game does have to change, and it will have to change, and it will be pre predicated upon many of these macro trends that you saw in the video and that I spoke about. Uh, but solutions do exist today. There are future uh, solutions, but solutions do exist today, uh, and we're proud to be a part of those solutions, and I want to thank you all uh, for your time. November, and we have a video that specifically shows 
um, him and his accomplishments in Ghana. So you give us a minute, though, too, to like sum up. Thanks. Can I start and then you can run yeah. the video yeah. later? Absolutely. Okay, let's do that. So good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Patrick Ewa. I'm a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. And um, I'm currently running a college in Ghana uh, that I founded in 2002. And so I want to talk with you a little bit about that. Before I, I do that, I just wanted to start with a simple question. Um, have you seen the face of a newborn child? How many here have done so? Okay, I'd have expected most of you, so this is good. Um, I did too, um, in 1995. And before that, um, as many of the men here have experienced as well, I did the drill, the drive to the hospital, you know, making like a hero, um, and getting to the hospital and, and finding out who the real hero was, which is my wife, uh, Rebecca. Uh, but then we had this child, this African child. And it, it caused me to really reevaluate what I'm about, what my life should be about, and what the world means for this child and others like him, the African children. Um, and at this time, I was a program manager at Microsoft Corporation. I'd been there for a while and um, had, up until that time, decided I'd stay in the United States uh, because I had a great career. But I went back to Ghana, where I'm from, to see what I could do to assist. Because when my son was born, it was a really joyful time for me and my family. But it was also very distressing because of events that were happening on the continent with Rwanda, with Somalia, with some of the crises in, in West Africa, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Uh, so what to do about it? I asked a lot of questions. And in particular, there's a question that I asked where I take any problem that I would see and have a discussion with friends and family. Why is this the way it is? And I'd get a set of answers. And I'd take each of those answers and ask why. And very quickly, we would settle on leadership as a source of many of the problem. Why? Because leaders, those in positions of influence who were accepting the status quo, or some of them were just doing the wrong thing. Uh, and so then the question became, well, how do you change leadership in Ghana? How do you change leadership in Africa? How do you do it? Uh, when you're 30 years old exploring this question. Um, and this took me to go look at education, the educational system. Let me tell you a little bit about Ghana's educational system. Um, it's all road learning from kindergarten through graduate school. And the higher educational system accommodates 5% of college-age kids, only 5% of people between the ages of 18 and 23 get to go to college in Ghana. And 5% is important for a couple of reasons. One is it's too small, it needs to grow. And the second is that almost by definition, 
those who go to college will one day be running the country. By definition, the 5% are the ones who become the judges and the lawyers and the business people and the engineers who build the infrastructure and the doctors, the teachers, and so on. The 5%. And so when you look at what's happening in the colleges and universities and see road learning and a culture of cheating where, where students will cheat as long as they can get away with it, that causes, at least for me, it caused distress. Because what I was looking at in the universities was what Ghana would look like 30 years forward. Another way to look at it is Ghana today, Africa today, is because of what the universities looked like 30 years ago. And why, why did I say 30 years? Because the CEOs, the chief executives across the board, in public and private, they're in the 40s and 50s. So quite shortly after you know, college, you know, two or three decades, they'll be heading institutions. And so I started this project to help transform the way education is done. Um, and in particular, to bring a model of education that I had experienced in the United States um, when I came to college here at Swarthmore College to bring the liberal arts method to Ghana, to teach critical thinking, to really focus on ethical intelligence, and really focus on, if I had to say it in two words, compassion and competence. So competence in the sense of being critical thinkers, analytical thinkers, problem solvers, and compassion, people who have empathy, people who care, people who are great citizens and who will become great leaders in their society. And that's what a Shesti is about. I did this with the idea that I wouldn't actually see results for 30 years. And so this was a long-term play, and I resolved myself to that, um, and my team did as well. Then we had some surprises, because we are starting to see some amazing short-term impact that we hadn't anticipated. And I'll share just a few of them with you before we, we roll the tape. First of all, we have achieved 100% placement of our students after graduation. 95% of them stay on the continent of Africa to work. And 5% are going to graduate education in Europe, typically. Um, a few examples of the jobs that they're doing. We have a student, or a graduate now, an alum, who became the head of Treasury Department of a bank in Sierra Leone two years after he graduated. It's amazing because that's the kind of thing you expect to see 30 years later, not two years later. And it's because Sierra Leone is coming from a post-conflict situation, there's, there's really great need. Um, we have an alum who joined the Ghanaian military um, and within a couple of years was heading a squad, a peacekeeping squad in Liberia. We have alums who are director level in financial services um, in Ghana, uh, or heading orphanages, um, heading nonprofit institutions in Ghana. And so we see this tremendous impact already and this tremendous recognition of what 
a, a, a liberal arts education can do um, and the impact that they can achieve. It's a little bit scary sometimes. I mean, certainly when I heard about Andrew heading Treasury in Sierra Leone, I sent an email to the faculty and said, stay with this guy. <laughs> uh, because he, he's young, he's going to make his mistakes in a very important position. We need to give him all the help we can, we can give him. Um, recently, we are engaged in this amazing conversation in Ghana uh, because of an act that our students have, have done, have taken, that has caused astonishment in the country um, and has generated uh, some pushback against Ashesi, um, but, but which I think is good. And it is this, that our students, after a very intense conversation starting in 2006, started to roll out an honor system on campus um, two years ago. And the honor system is basically a commitment by the student body that they voted into force that says they will not cheat, nor will they tolerate those who do. And we've stepped out of the exam rooms. So we don't proctor exams anymore. The good news is most of them are living up to the code. The bad news is a few have violated the code, and the good news is they've been held accountable by their peers who brought them forward to the judicial committee and, and made sure the right things were done. Now, a very interesting thing has happened because the accreditation board in Ghana is very skeptical of this and has asked us to discontinue the honor system. They don't believe that students in Africa can be trusted to work on their honor. They simply don't believe it. And when I got this directive, the first thing I did was to go to the student council and tell them about it. And their first question was, why would the National Accreditation Board, the NAB, ask us to stop doing the right thing? And they voted unanimously to um, not heed the directive of the NAB. So then I went to the faculty and, and administration and said, the student council doesn't want us to stop. I agree with them. What do you think? After a one-hour discussion, they voted unanimously that we continue. But the really amazing thing is I went to the whole student body, 450 of them, and asked them what to do. And by a unanimous vote, every hand up and a standing ovation, they said, let us resist this directive. Let us show Ghana that we can have integrity. And so it's caused this conversation in the media in Ghana, not only at Ashesi but at other universities. And I think that it is the most inspiring thing that I have experienced that evening, when they made that vote, I asked myself, what is this? What is this? And I thought, this is starlight, and it will not be dimmed. Thank you. Okay. Can you see your video? Sure.
Just about everybody I mentioned this to thought I was crazy or that I was kidding. Some of them were alarmed. <laughs> future is what we make it. The future is what you don't know. The future is the vast possibilities available. The future of Ghana is one of excitement. We're looking at, at a, a very human level impacting individual lives. We're also looking at impacting a whole society by fundamentally rewriting how leaders are educated in Africa. We do have problems, but that makes it also exciting because those challenges create room for somebody to do something positive. So we're looking to a model of education that is developing analytical thinking, that is most importantly developing deep compassion for society. And we think that that's a fundamental part of turning Africa around and, and really enabling Africa to flourish. My name is Arban Biba Mwesi. I live and work here at the village of Hope. I'm 28 years old and I'm a graduate of Ashesi University. Children have come here through a variety of circumstances. Most of them are orphans. I knew Araba as a top computer science student here. She could get any job she wanted. And yet she chose this one because she had done community service as part of her education here and seen firsthand what a difference she could make. We're training ethical entrepreneurial leaders who have the courage, which is really what it will take to transform the continent. My dream is to see the youngest child at the Village of Hope get a university degree. My version of Africa is a place with a lot of opportunities, a place with a lot of very intelligent people who are trying and making it in various little ways. If you walk down the road, you see people who are trying to create their own things, trying to sell, trying to make a living. Um, it's a place of opportunity for a lot of us to actually bring about change. My dream for Ghana is to see Ghana being a high-income country, not a low- nor middle-income country.
most people have the difficulty in going into petty trading because they think the income isn't good enough to sustain them. He has this dream of who he's going to become. And now he has the opportunity. Ashesi has a dream to change Africa, and that is my dream. Until you train people who are passionate about what they're learning, you can't see any change. That's it. The kids in this continent really are the future of this continent. They will be running this, their countries one day. And if we enable them, we make a dramatic difference, we make a dramatic change. Integrity means the trust that people have in you. Nobody can ever say that they've succeeded unless they've ever failed. My personal dream is to be the best I can be, um, an established career woman, but at the same time with family and um, kids and marriage. Hope is believing that change can come. Hello, how are you? Good. Uh, that was a beautiful presentation. I would characterize Patrick's presentation as the calm before the storm of the next two presentations, mine and the next one. Um, it's a wonderful, absolutely wonderful project. So my name is Jack Hittery. I'm an entrepreneur, um, some say troublemaker. Uh, and I'm always trying to think about new kinds of ways of doing things. My career has had a very logical progression, of course. I was a philosophy major then became a brain scientist, then started a few technology companies, then got into the energy area, and um, very involved in cars, mobility, and things like that. You may have heard of one of my projects called Cash for Clunkers. Anyone here? Turn in a clunker. A few clunkers here? All right, good. So we're going to talk today about the automobile, the current situation, and the future. And we're going to talk about how can we game change the situation. Well, part of my job is to travel around the world and find great solutions to game change this. And the good news is that about a year ago, I came across an incredible solution. This is a vehicle that is very lightweight, very sustainable. In fact, you can eat the contents of this particular vehicle. I want to show it to you right now. This is the Blueberry Mobile. It is a real vehicle. I first saw it on the deserts of Burning Man. Anyone here heard of Burning Man? A lot of different projects there, art projects, things like that. I saw this moving just beside me. Talk to the uh, inventor, owner, artist you see here. And I say, wow, that's an interesting one-off project. Sure enough, about six months later, a friend of mine sends me the Neiman Marcus catalog. As we know, the Christmas catalog comes out. A lot of great presents you can buy people. $100,000 presents, $25,000 presents. Sure enough, what's one of the gifts you can get for Christmas this past year? One of these. So this one from being something on Burning Man to something you could buy for your friends and family for Christmas. So never say never. Well, let's look at the situation. Ford Model T, 1908, over 100 years ago. Miles per gallon. Any guesses out there? How many miles per gallon did the Ford Model T, the first mass-scale manufactured car out there? Any ideas? 40, 25, 35. We have 20 miles per gallon. Now, here's the question. 
It's now 102 years later. We have many more cars, a lot of advanced technology, fantastic stuff has happened, men to the moon, computers, you heard from HP, all kinds of great stuff. What is the miles per gallon average of the fleet today in the United States of America? The average of all the cars, miles per gallon. <laughs> Very pessimistic audience here. Hmm. Who said 22? Who said 22? 22.5. Give that man a prize. Exactly. So in 102 years, we've had great progress. 20 to 22. That's, come on, that's 10%. That's 10% for you. So that's not very good, is it? No. Well, let's look at the big picture. 800 million vehicles in the world. 800 million vehicles in the world. How many in America? Of those, we are 4% of the world's population. 4% of the world's population. How many in America? 250 million in America for 300 million people. In China today, 70 million and growing really quickly. Now, if China gets to the same penetration rates that we do in terms of vehicles, they're going to have roughly a billion vehicles. A billion vehicles just in China. On top of the 800 million vehicles we have in the world today. So, my friends, I think there's a problem here. And what are some of the problems? Well, how do we fuel these cars? I'm not even talking about the Gulf spill. I'm going to go right to the stats. Could we actually fuel two or three billion cars on this planet the way we fuel them right now? With the current infrastructure, and even the infrastructure we create over the next 10 years, if we literally just went hell-bent on creating refineries and production and wells, we actually couldn't do it. When you look at two numbers, 65 and 68%. So for the United States, how much do we import of oil? 65% of our oil is imported. When we stood on those lines in the 70s to wait for gas at the gas station, how much were we importing at that time? Just about 25%. So we went in a great direction, importing from 25% to 65%. We learned the lessons of the 70s, did we not? 68%, what do we use our oil for? 68% of the oil in this country we use for transportation, for moving ourselves around. We no longer burn oil in this country, with a very few exceptions, to make power. Power comes from other sources. So the question is, can we actually fuel the stuff? No. If you look at the actual millions of barrels per day, about 85 million barrels of oil per day that we consume as a, as a world, again, 4% of the population, we consume in the United States 25% of that every single day. The capacity is only about 92 to 95 million barrels of oil a day to refine and process and deliver. We could try to increase that, but that's very difficult. So the fact is, we need a game changer. We need a solution. President Taft had it right. He bought an electric car. But somehow, that did not continue. What do we have? We have market failure. She says, ouch. Yeah, that's right. What's been the market failure? Why Thomas Edison created one of the first electric cars with Henry Ford? President Taft bought an electric car. In the 1920s, if you visited New York City and you wanted to take a taxi, it was an electric car. Not only that, with battery swap out. These electric taxis would go to a station, swap out their battery, bring one back in. So what happened? Several market failures. First, the batteries were not powerful enough to really serve our appetite for traveling long distances. Second, there was a catch-22. On the one hand, who wants to buy an electric car if there's no charging stations around? 
If there's no electric cars, though, who wants to put a charging station in? You can't charge anybody for the use of that particular station. Good news, my friends. A couple of new things. First, a lot of technology innovation. This is the Automotive X Prize. I was privileged to be one of the co-founders of this. We're about to award $10 million in the next few months to one of 90 teams from 22 countries who has achieved a mass market vehicle, cheaply reproducible, that gets 100 miles per gallon or better. One of the teams, by the way, is a high school in Philadelphia. They're still in the running. We're down to 20 teams. Yeah. So we're hoping that they have a great chance to win. Second, battery power. So as you can see from this curve here, the old lead-acid batteries, the kind of batteries you have in your car today to start your car, that battery in the front there, the kind of batteries you use in a lot of different applications, that doesn't have a lot of energy density. That is, if this is the battery, how much energy can I put into it? Not much. On the other hand, the kind of batteries that I have in my laptop back there, super light, is a lithium battery. That means I can have a lot of energy in that small, dense format. And so lithium batteries have really been a big game changer. A123 has gone public recently, and they're producing some of the batteries for these kinds of cars. This is the car that we suggest. No, we don't. Um, this is one of the cars that is being produced, but we don't think this is going to be the car that's going to get out there. The good news is there are really great cars coming out literally in the next six to nine months. More than 15 models of electric vehicles are hitting the market simultaneously. Something has happened. Everything has kind of come together for the next six to nine months for these cars to come. I'll just quickly take you through a few of them. This is the Fisker Karma. Does not come with the heel. But it is a beautiful car, four doors, handles very, very well. It is a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. So you can go 40, 50 miles on one charge, and then you can put gas in, and it runs just like a Prius. So you can drive across the country to your heart's content. You don't need a charging station. If you find a charging station, you can go into electric mode. The Nissan Leaf is coming out later this year in Europe, the United States, and Japan. This is a car that gets 100 miles on one charge. 100 miles on one charge. It's a pure EV. This is the Mitsubishi iMeef. We think this is going to be great for campuses and local neighborhoods. This gets about 80 miles on one charge. It's a pure EV. The Chevy Volt is another example of not a pure EV, but a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. Again, the kind of vehicle that, that uh, you can put gas into and you can use electric in the same way. And we also have the Toyota plug-in Prius, which is coming out in about a year and a half. Of course, we've all heard of the Tesla, and that's already out in a sports car format, coming out in other ways. And so we have different kinds of charging. Um, maybe someone just passed me that little thing on the right. Great. And so this, my friends, is the plug of the future. This is the level two charger, the one most of us will use. You can still charge up in a level one, a regular outlet. It's going to take too long. So if you have a washing machine kind of plug, you plug one of these things in, and you can plug your car in and charge up in a matter of a few hours. And of course, there'll be level three charging. And level three charging is a 400 volt, really, really powerful. You can charge your car in under 20 minutes. And so the question is, again, how do we avoid the same market failure we had? Well, let's look at this experiment in Japan. And so in Japan right now, there are about 4,000 of those Mitsubishi iMeves running around the place in Tokyo. And what they found is very interesting. There's a psychological component to the electric car situation. When they only had two of those fast chargers, those big 400-volt chargers I mentioned before, you had a certain amount of activity and usage of these cars being used by government fleet owners. But when you added just a few more of those DC chargers, you suddenly, you suddenly more than triple the usage of the cars, even though the actual usage of the high-speed chargers did not actually go up. 
So there's a psychological effect, and that's what's happening right now in the United States, in London, in lots of places. Here you see uh, Mayor Gavin Newsom. Here's London. Uh, lots of different places. The DOE, the Department of Energy, has now given massive grants. We're going to see more than 50,000 charging stations across this country over the next five years, installed in part by public and private partnerships. And so high-density areas, all these kinds of areas. But there's still one final question. Are people going to buy these cars? And my contention is, initially, no. This is still too big a change, behaviorally, for people to buy these cars. And so I think we also have to innovate, not just in technology innovation, like you saw here, with charging stations and batteries, but also in the business model innovation. And this is where we get to car sharing, car rental, and other kinds of mobility solutions. And so people may have heard of Zipcar or Connect. Anyone here have used a shared car? A few of you have. And so instead of having to buy this car, what we're going to find over the next 6 to 12 months is the rollout of several car sharing services with electric vehicles, with all the charging stations built in, not just where you pick up the car, but also at Best Buy, at Costco, at Walmart, at places you go to, at resorts. And so you pick up the car, it's already charged up, you bring it to where you're going to go, and then you drop it off. You can take it to the airport, you can drop it off there. So this new different business model of not necessarily owning a vehicle or owning three vehicles is something that I think is going to be married with electric vehicles to provide a real game-changing solution. This is the first time that all the pieces have come together. This, my friends, is the game changer. Thank you very much. Can a ball change the world? Great hypothesis, a great notion. I'm gonna share with you my story of how a ball changed my life, and then I'm gonna share with you stories that I've witnessed all over the world of individuals using a ball as a catalytic tool, a social innovation tool to make a difference in the world. It truly can happen. I stand before you proof of that. A ball changed my life, it saved me. I'm the product of two addict parents, hard scrabble life, Upheaval, dysfunction. A playground saved my life. I show up at a playground, there happens to be a ball, a group of boys playing there. All kinds of things ensue, from wiffle ball to soccer to basketball to football. I belong somewhere. I have a community. I have no sense of family up to this point. I'm only six years old. But now I have this community around a ball. This is going to be important for me. I make a commitment at six years old. And I say, if you can do that to the ball, I speak to the ball directly. I said, if you can make that happen where I belong, I commit my life to you. My life to you. Little did I know that that innocent moment of inspiration would turn into a lifetime chase. And I chased the ball from six years old up to this point now at 51. I tell people I'm well-preserved, but I also tell them the engine might look good, but the chassis is definitely rusty. <laughs> Little car metaphor for you there. We heard from game changers. We heard from technology. We heard the fact that education can be a game changer. We heard that mobility, there's going to be game-changing moments. 
Well, I'm here to tell you that play can be a game changer, and a ball can change the life of others. As I commit my life to a ball, I decide that I'm going to find ways to assist others as social innovators and human catalysts to make a difference in the world using sport and play. I travel around the world, and I get a very simple notion. I'm going to start trading kids brand new soccer balls, brand new basketballs, brand new playground balls for the ball that they're making out of whatever is available. Just yesterday, um, I don't know if any of you got a chance to see the New York Times, but they actually had an article about a photographer who did a whole series of images in South Africa on playground balls that she discovered, but she also was looking at how big and wide and loving the game of soccer can be and what has happened with that. And so I actually have a ball collection from all over the world that numbers well over 150 that I've been collecting for nearly a decade now. And so I want you all to see really what can happen when you do a ball exchange. So this is a moment in Uganda, and we're trading them the soccer balls. And some of the balls that you will get when you do this trade can be magical because they demonstrate the genius of our youth, our innovative spirit, our creativity, our ability to problem solve, but more so, they demonstrate the necessity of play. How play is hardwired in us, how we absolutely cannot ignore it. There's amazing, amazing scientific research. You're going to hear from Dr. Stuart Brown tomorrow from the National Institute for Play. He's going to talk about the science behind play. I love the fact that he always shares this notion that if you try to withhold play from your life, there will be deleterious effects. Bad things will happen to you. Yet people do it. We marginalize play as we get older. Yet children recognize its role and value no matter what their circumstances, no matter where they're at, whatever circumstances they're in, they're going to find a way to play. And so this is what some of the organizations that I've had a chance to work with. This is in India, actually, when we got a chance to do a ball exchange there. And this is in the outback in Northern Territory in Australia. We got a chance to do a ball exchange there. And the result is that we received balls that look like this. So this is from Mozambique, a trash bag ball. This is a water balloon ball from Mexico. This is a trash bag ball from Zambia. The children had no string. They came up with a solution. They peeled a tire rubber down so they got it thinly peeled and they made string out of tire rubber. This is from Bahia, Brazil. This was the only ball in the village. They were playing 11 against 11 soccer match with this ball. When we went to trade them for this ball, they actually thought we were trying to steal it. So we had to do the trust move where we set the ball down, the new ball, and back away slowly. And the children pick up the new ball and leave this one behind. We ask a very simple question. When is this ball, this ball, not a ball anymore? One of the children said, well, when there's only one panel left, it's not a ball. But you use it till there's nothing left of it. This is a ball from Uganda. It's made of dry banana fibers from a tree. It takes two days to create it. It's a marvel in ingenuity, problem solving, abstract thinking, and creativity, all wrapped up in something, unfortunately, that adults marginalize, yet children recognize its importance. I'm here to tell you that play has tremendous purpose, tremendous purpose in what we're dealing with today. See, because play allows us to deal with change. It allows us to be resilient. It allows us to use our imagination and be inventive. Yet as we get older, we tend to marginalize our play to the weekends, right? Oh, I'll play on the weekend and I'll play hard. But we need to play every day. We need to find moments of joy, moments of passion, moments of inspiration that activate our brain over and over again to stimulate us so that we can see things with that perspective of children. So some of the organizations that I've had a chance to witness the power of sport and play and how it's been a game changer is one here, Global Youth Partnership for Africa. I actually partnered with them. The founder of it is Jeremy Michael Goldberg, a young man who graduated from the University of Texas, stalked me, found me at an, an event, presented to me an opportunity to build two fields, 
So we actually resurrected a soccer field in Uganda, and we also built a basketball court there. Now they use those for health education and for social inclusion projects, and then they also play games there. This is one of the organizations that's benefited from the soccer field. This is Girls Kick It out of Uganda, and they're actually wearing uniforms from a high school girls team in Portland, Oregon that traded them. They sent them to them. After hearing my story, these young ladies said, we want to assist. Is there a girls team that you know about that could actually benefit from some old uniforms that we have? I say, absolutely. We'll send them to Uganda. And so they actually had this wonderful exchange between the two teams, and they've now become pen pals, if you will, via the Internet and Skype. The Homeless World Cup, some of you may have heard of it, amazing organization that does phenomenal things. Mel Young is the co-founder of this. They work with marginalized community of homeless people. They bring them together for leadership training and for a soccer tournament. They've been all over the world. The most recent one was in Milan, Italy. They'll be in Rio de Janeiro this um, fall. Fifty nations represented there, 500 athletes, all marginalized citizens, mostly invisible, no longer invisible because they're playing for their nations, wearing their nation's kits, and playing in this tournament. First time ever getting out of their community, but they had to make a commitment. They had to actually go to practice. They had to set goals. They had to get off drugs. They had to seek work. They had to find a way to find a home, all because of a ball, a ball that was presented to them, but that ball represents opportunity. Right to Play, phenomenal organization, amazing organization that is advocating on behalf of children's issues and challenges around the world, working in conflict regions, helping, assisting young people with health education, literacy problem solving, and all those kinds of things that really we think should be just the government agencies working on that, and they're the only ones who'd be dedicated to that, but it's not true. You can find ways to do that through sport and play, and Right to Play is doing tremendous work all over the globe, simply using a ball as a convening tool to make a difference in the lives of others. Peace Players International, they're located out of D.C., but they do global work around conflict regions and conflict barriers. They build bridges between individuals and populations that normally would not be together. So Israeli and Palestinian children playing basketball together and then having confrontations or communication about conflict and confrontations that they're dealing with in their communities. They're having this wonderful bridge being built between them because of a ball. Beyond Sport, a new organization that's just developed the opportunity to create leadership and development training for global organizations. They'll be convening in Chicago. The first one was just last year in London, England. They'll be convening in Chicago, bringing shortlisted organizations that got selected because of the work that they're doing. They're going to be getting leadership training, problem-solving training, partnership training, and communication training. Second City Entertainment actually has agreed to do the storytelling piece for them and to assist them with learning how to tell their stories to gain new partnerships and new advocacy around their efforts. Architecture for Humanity, they've actually been guests here. Cameron Sinclair is the founder of that organization, a wonderful gentleman, but also someone that I've had a chance to, what he says, build back better. So Cameron builds convening locations and destinations for communities all around sport and play. They actually have helped with building some of the Football for Hope centers that are being built all throughout Africa. So can a ball truly change the world? I believe it can. I'm proof of that. I went on because of my life in sports to work in professional sports, to become an author, become a speaker, to become a human catalyst. 
someone who advocates on behalf of but assists others in making a difference in their lives, of young people. But I thought it would be a great opportunity for all of you, if there are any people who are inspired by this notion of taking a ball and making a difference, I bought, I brought a few of my friends here. And so, if there are any takers, I have a ball for you to take back to wherever you live. And what I ask is that you share that story back to the Aspen Ideas Festival or to me, however you want to do it. But I offer these up, and if you need it, I even have a hand pump. So... I offer this up when we're finished with this gathering. You can come up and scoop it up. Are there any takers? I need to know that for sure. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Don't let your shyness starve you. As my grandmother said, you need to get up off your behind and come and get it. And um, I thank you for your time and your attention. Treat, treat a ball much more lovingly. Thank you. Grab a seat. Kevin, Jack, Patrick, uh, Michael. Is Michael back in the room? There you are. Good. Come on up. Uh, we have about uh, 10 minutes or so for questions and answers and wanted to open it up. All I ask you is that you wait till the microphone gets to you uh, and that you make it a question. Any questions out there? Yes, sir. And then why don't we preposition the next microphone? Who's got another question? Hands up. Yes, sir. Right there. In here. Not here in the mic. Hospital in Norway. Could you start over again? We just got that. The first uh, slide you used was Norway. Are there any countries in the United States that are using that are using the same technology that they're using in Norway? Yeah, we're using that all around the world. I mean, uh, we do business about 173 countries. So that was just one example of a hospital that stepped up and, and completely uh, rebuilt their whole infrastructure and went digital. Uh, when you think about it, 65% uh, of all medical records today are paper-based and 25% of all the billing. And how many of you out there have been frustrated with mistakes, claims, um, processing, and inaccuracy. Um, and what we do know relative to the level of efficiency and effectiveness that's delivered that we can reduce the cost while providing better care. And that's what we've seen in Norway. Uh, one of the other hospitals that is certainly in our backyard that's taking this up uh, and is looking to build a, a brand new hospital is Stanford Medical Center. And in fact, they will be deploying some of the, the most sophisticated technology relative to mobile and digital uh, records. So it, it, is, it is more prolific than just Norway. We use that as an example to, to showcase that uh, it truly is a global issue. It's not just a U.S. issue. Great. Thank you. Yes, sir. Okay. I'm going to ask oh, it okay. first because I have one. Yes. To the man with the electric car. I live Jack. in Hi, yes. I live in Aspen. I've tried to buy them. They don't go fast enough for me to go on the highway. How fast are these new cars going to go? Yeah, that's, that's a great piece of news. Again, one of the failures before was that these were small cars, not ready for the highway. They were called NEVs, Neighborhood Electric Vehicles. The good news is all the cars I showed there uh, go 100-plus miles an hour. not recommending you do that, but they do go 100-plus miles per hour. You can go super fast on the highway. In fact, what's, what's not well known in, in the States about electric cars is that the torque and the acceleration is much faster 
than a gas-powered car. So, for example, the Tesla that I showed before has a faster acceleration than a Porsche or Ferrari. Um, because when you have an electric car, you just step on that pedal and there's no delay. You just go right away. As opposed to a gas combustion car, you have to have some combustion happening before you can get there. So the good news is I recommend trying to drive these things. Again, my contention is that most people will not go to a showroom, just drive for five minutes and buy it. I do think that people want to test it because of those concerns that you're raising right now. They're going to want to use it in their real life. That's where I think car sharing, car rental, other, other kinds of fleet solutions are going to be the initial vector of adoption. Great. Yes, sir. Uh, is it on? Uh, this is for Michael. Uh, when you were speaking about innovation and you gave examples of where you've been working, at the, at the heart of innovation is collaboration. And I was wondering about the culture that builds a collaborative, innovative series of platforms rather than just pursuing technology on its own. Yeah, I think, I think some of it is, um, and, and what we've seen, I think, in multiple industries, is it gets back to um, the ability to take risk, right, which is fundamentally um, a piece of sort of the HP culture that was created back with Bill and Dave. And, and that ability to take risks, uh, to go out and actually do the R. A lot of people say they're doing R&D. They're really doing development. It's iterations of development. It's not truly research that leads to a cataclysmic sort of change uh, or a disruptive change. We've seen some disruptive changes in, in the technology space, but what you've seen over time is uh, those budgets begin to shrink on the R side. It's something at HP, I know several uh, other people in the IT space very concerned about. We actually continue to invest in the R side of the R&D, which becomes important because that, be that really is one of the drivers of innovation. I think um, we have a great collaborative culture. I mean, one that uh, I think was fostered very, very early on um, with Bill and Dave. I have a question for uh, Patrick and Kevin. Uh, your work in Africa. Uh, three months ago, I challenged the Rotary International Foundation trustees, one of whom I think is from Ghana, uh, to declare a goal to end war within a generation. Your work was sport and education, and the fact that the uh, wars are, there are no international wars anymore, but there are regional and, and civil wars. Have, in your experience, have you talked about setting a goal like that at all, to end war in these countries by introducing inputs like sport and technology so, so you don't have boy soldiers and you don't have these conflicts? What do you think of that goal? I think that's an amazing goal. I think it's a, a wonderful, audacious idea. And I think that there'll be a lot of things that will assist with that. And I know that sport is being used as that convening tool and it's being used for um, child soldiers when they're returning back to communities because of a lot of the aggression that they have. They're using sports as part of the way of, of retraining and reteaching. And so I know that's a big part of what's been going on, but it has not been set aside as to be the main thing, but I think it's being used as one of the tools to assist with the success of repatriating and, and reintroducing some of the child soldiers into their communities. But I, I would imagine with Patrick's work that education would be another one of those wonderful convenient tools too. Right, I, I think that that's, that's an amazing goal and um, it crystallizes things. We haven't talked about that specifically, but there, there are a lot of things that we do and talk about 
that would lead to that, to that outcome. So for instance, the, the very heavy focus on, on ethics and integrity, I mean, the, the, the biggest ethical issues or the deepest ethical issues in the world are the ones where um, human suffering is caused by one's actions or one's lack of action. And so as students are debating and discussing ethics, this is something uh, that, that does come up. The other thing is just the whole idea of, of human dignity, um, the idea of the rule of law uh, and, and rights, uh, which we do in a formal way in, 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 our, in our curriculum, but also informally in terms of the kind of campus culture that, that we're fostering. And we've seen uh, some uh, impact there. So for instance, um, in 2006, for the first time in Ghana's history, a woman was elected president of a student government um, at Ashesi. Um, and the, the, the next year and the, the year after that, suddenly other campuses had women as president of, of their student government. And so those kinds of activities where you, know, you talk about human dignity, you talk about inclusion, uh, respect for, for rights and the rule of law would lead to that outcome. But I really like this idea of focusing and saying this is one of the things that we will get rid of. You, you mentioned technology as well, and I, I want to share that the access to knowledge and the access to information becomes incredibly important. And in fact, we saw that out of Iran. We see that out of many countries that where you have the communities connected, the ability to connect, the ability to communicate, the ability to access knowledge uh, improves the quality of a village, improves the quality. Uh, and I'll give you, for instance, uh, when you think about human rights, uh, there, there are several very important uh, women's organizations in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, and you think of some of the atrocities that have happened to women in those markets. We actually went in and networked uh, for these organizations, the ability to connect, to connect to the broader world, to connect to each other, to communicate to each other, which was incredibly valuable, which changed the outcomes and starts to change the outcomes in these communities. So I do think you're right about the important use of technology in this space, uh, and it, do, it does help. Great. Yes. Uh, Don Spiro, Bethesda, Maryland. First of all, Kevin, thank you for this ball. It's going to end up in the little village of Caskicote in Nepal, and they're going to thank you for that. Um, Jack, I wonder if a better place is still in the mix. I'd like to hear about that. And uh, Patrick, your work is wonderful. Um, I'm wondering what the challenges were in, in creating and recruiting faculty for your school, and also if there's an outcome yet in the student honor code issue. I mean, where has that ended up? I'd love to know. Great. Uh, sorry, what was your name? Don. Don. So Don asked about a better place. A better place is a great question. Is another business model innovation, and one I think that has to be really looked at very carefully. I think it's going to be great for Israel, for Denmark, for a number of uh, more focused areas where you can control the entire infrastructure. Uh, so their first country will be Israel. Israel has a goal of getting off of oil and importing of oil for a number of obvious reasons uh, over the next five to, to ten years. And I believe they will be successful. And the Better Place model is interesting because, again, you don't have to buy the car. They're going to put charging stations in. And just like a cell phone plan, you'll purchase or commit to a multi-year agreement with Better Place to get a car plus a number of miles every month that you charge up. And so it's like an all-inclusive package. I think it's going to be great for a place like that. For a country like the United States, 
I think like many things, we'll have many different business models. So just like in video games, we have console games like Xbox and Wii, and we have PC games, and we have online casual games. In this country, I think we're going to experiment with many different business models, and that's what we have to do. If we fall back to the old business model of automobile distribution, of simply going to a dealership and trying to buy that car, I think once again we will fail in this, in this area. But the game changer here is to marry the business model innovation, be it a better place, be it the car sharing and other kinds of business models, with the new technology innovation, the two together. And Patrick? So you, you had a couple of questions, one about faculty um, and the other about the status of the honor code debate. With faculty, we very much look for people who understand the mission of what we're doing and agree with it. And so we're looking for faculty who are going to be engaged with students as guides rather than as you know, authoritarian figures. Um, and um, we, we look for diversity within the, the faculty itself, so um, recruiting women and men, rec recruiting uh, people from Ghana and from outside of Ghana. Uh, and so we have this sort of diverse group of faculty um, and that strengthens our, our mission um, and it strengthens the way we interact with students as, as well. Um, with respect to the honor code debate, it is still ongoing. I mean, and the thing is, it's, it's not public, and so there's, you know, conversations on radio, on television. We co-hosted um, uh, an ethics conference uh, for the first time with, with one of the state universities. Um, I don't know what the outcome is, is going to be in terms of our ability to continue it uh, in its current form. Uh, but I'm hopeful that we will be able to continue it. Uh, I think that the, 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 most, uh, the thing that interests me most, or that I'm, I'm most excited about, is the conversation that's going on publicly in the media, but also um, on Facebook, for instance, there's a lot of, sort of debate between Ashesi students, students from other schools. And we've had uh, student governments from two or three other schools come to us and ask about how they can Im implement a similar system in, in their institutions. So that's very exciting. Great. I'm afraid that's it for our time. I do apologize. We had four great presentations. I want to thank all of these gentlemen for theirs, and, and thank you very much. Thanks to you all.